Hey guys, welcome to week six. We've now officially crossed over into the second half of the term and I promise you things are gonna go really quickly from here on out. I'm on day 52 of the self-quarantine count up, past the half century mark and feeling like the uncertainty of when any of this is gonna change is definitely settled in. Uh, you may notice that today I'm wearing a tie. In fact, you, unless you're listening, to the podcast version, which you may be. Uh, for those of you listening, I'm wearing a tie, and that's partly to commemorate halfway through the term, but it's also because today we're talking about communication. This is the public-facing side of a campaign, and so I thought, well, I'll just celebrate that by wearing a tie. Uh, I will note that just before I started recording, I spilled water on my shirt, which I think it's pretty much dried by now, uh, but obviously I'm not a very adept, like put on a tie and just get out in front of people without spilling on, on myself. Uh, <clears throat> so I hope it's not too distracting, but there it is. I hope the tie's not too distracting. My, my, my sleeves are also rolled all the way down, which is sort of unnatural for me, uh, but it is a rainy, chilly day, so we'll see whether the sleeves stay rolled down or not, and whether the tie stays fully tied. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is the public-facing side of the campaign, and essentially, this is the campaign. Uh, this is what all of the rest of the work is all about. It's all about taking your strategy to the people. How do you reach voters and supporters, right? That's the whole, what a campaign is about is reaching voters and supporters. Uh, and really reaching supporters so that you can more effectively reach voters. It's really, this is the thing. Now, I've duplicated from last class the sort of flow uh, of what goes into uh, uh, creating a campaign. Finding the voice, developing a strategy, communicating. Uh, at this point, I took away the arrow that I had last time, which was revisit if needed, because at this point, we're like, okay, the, 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 the synthesis between the strategy and the voice is done now. Now we've moved into this stage where uh, we're communicating, and then the, the ongoing sort of feedback is evaluating the successes and failures uh, to see whether or not you actually need to change your strategy and communicate differently. Communication is a kind of an ongoing experiment in seeing how effectively you do this, reaching voters and supporters. In a high-level campaign, part of this evaluation is going to be polls and focus groups in an ongoing way, right? For most of the campaigns that I've been talking about, things that are, uh, you know, the kinds of jobs you're gonna get early on in your, in your career if you do go into this, um, you know, city council races, state legislative races, judicial races, uh, ballot measures, these are the kinds of uh, campaigns that don't always have the kind of resources necessary to do a really ongoing evaluation. And so I'm not gonna talk too much about that uh, in, in this particular class, uh, what it takes to evaluate polls, what kind of polls you wanna do. Uh, there, the, the other classes that I offer, uh, there's a summer class that I'm offering on media opinion and voting. We're talking an awful lot in that class about polling and focus groups. Uh, there's another class which is the politics of public opinion. I just offered it in the winter term. I'm probably offering it again, maybe next year or maybe on a two-year cycle that really digs deep into that. So there are some skills that are involved in a campaign that we're not gonna deep, take a deep, deep dive into. But just know that part of what's going on when you communicate is that there really is this evaluation feedback loop. The more evaluation you can do, the more resources you have, and this, part of it is that you need a lot of staff to do this. It's because the time, you don't get extra time. Uh, in terms of number of days. The more resources you have, the more you can do this ongoing evaluation. For the most part, what's gonna happen with a campaign is that, uh, a low-level campaign, a down-ballot campaign, is that you're gonna 
go through these stages. Hopefully you'll even have time to do the first stage, but you'll develop a strategy and then you'll implement it and it's basically like that's the campaign. It's, it's, it's three weeks or five weeks or, or three months at the most and what you're doing is you're implementing it. So today I'm going to focus on this. I think I spent a decent amount of time last time talking about developing a strategy. Um, I do have props today. Uh, the, this is the whole board. I'm not going to add to the board. I don't even have chalk around, though I did get a new box of chalk via the internet. Two boxes of chalk, so I should not run out for the rest of this duration. Um, my props are, one, I have my ballot, which arrived a few days ago, and I'm going to talk about like what this whole ballot is. Uh, part of it, look how big this ballot is. There's so much on here, and one of the things that I talked about last time, the challenge that you are going to have as a candidate or running a campaign is getting people to get all the way through to your spot on this particular ballot, right? Like this is a presidential one. So here we have president, people are going to do this. We have senator, we have representative, uh, house representative. And even on the front, like this is way down ballot, but then there's a whole back here. Uh, and look at, the, look at some of these races, look at all these names, right? To, just to even get somebody to, to look at this and fill out those down ballot. That's part of what you're doing when you're trying to reach voters and supporters um, is just get them to fill it out. Now, I have my other prop, I have more than one, is the voters pamphlet which arrived a couple weeks earlier and this has all the information that you need as a voter to be able to make this decision. In Oregon, one of the best ways, one of the most effective ways, and here it is on the uh, communication, to get people to flip over the ballot and find your name on this giant long list, City of Portland, Commissioner Position 2, look at all of these names. Right? How do you even, say, say I do want to vote for that. Like, how do I decide? The voter's pamphlet, this is probably the most effective means of communication. It's, it's buried in the list here, um, but uh, it is, for a lot of really down ballot races, it's going to be the big thing. So writing your voter pamphlet statement and getting the endorsements that are going to be a, a big, for successful candidates, a big part of their voter pamphlet, uh, is an important, super important piece of public communication. It's very gray. I mean, this is just newsprint, and it's, it's, it is the least sexy form of communication you could possibly imagine. But it is essential and very important. We'll talk about this. And then my final set of props is what came in the mail yesterday. This, is the, this was the entirety of my mail yesterday. Uh, now, I have four pieces of direct mail. One of them is for uh, CenturyLink, and this is internet service. The other three are all, and look how differently sized and shaped and, and they are. These are all three candidates for Portland City Council position number two. Um, and... Uh, there are more, let's see, I'll go to my ballot. Position number two has all of these people running for it. And I got yesterday, because we vote, today is May 3rd, we vote two weeks from Tuesday, uh, or the final deadline for voting is two weeks from Tuesday, people are already filling out their ballots. This stuff is dropping. So this is mail, direct mail. Um, three pieces of it. And I have to say that I don't particularly, I'm not particularly fond of any of them. Though I would say that of, of the three, this one looks like some, I mean, this scares me away. This looks like a tabloid. This is just too much. It's too much like a magazine. It's too much, it, it, it just has all this kind of information. I don't like this one. This one is my favorite. Now, I'm not necessarily going to vote for, who is this? Uh, Jazz Davis. Jazz Davis. I don't even know how to pronounce the name. Um, and I'm not really sure, like, is that him or is this him? It's a little confusing having 
a picture that's not the candidate, but this piece of direct mail is the most digestible to me. Uh, and I'm not going to read any of them. I, I, there, there they are. They came in the mail, and the only reason they didn't get directly recycled was because I was preparing for this lecture today. Uh, I know that I've already thrown out a variety of campaign mailers, along with your standard junk mail. One of the reasons why I keep this out here uh, is what, one, I wanted to show you what all my mail was, but, but also, like, look at this. How do I tell the difference? This, I, I know this registers as junk mail. Direct mail is a form of communication, uh, but it is not a very effective form of communication because it's just stuff that I'm easily going to recycle. Now, this particular cycle, because this, especially canvassing and fundraisers and speeches and debates uh, and voter and uh, candidate forums, they're just off the table. Anything that's a live human event is gone from spring 2020 campaigning. And so the direct mailer is becoming, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's filling a role that it, it really is never intended to fill, which is primary uh, front of the brain information. Uh, it's going to be interesting to compare voter turnout in this particular election with uh, voter turnout in prior elections, and not even because of the whole quarantine, shelter-in-place, lockdown thing. We have vote-by-mail, and people can drop it off. We don't, no one has to wait in line in Oregon, and never has. So we don't have the same concerns that voters in other states would have about like basically trying to maintain social distancing while going to vote and having a sense that like maybe your vote doesn't even matter that much anyway, so why put yourself or your family at risk? Um, it'll be interesting to see. People will send this ballot in. I have, I have little doubt that the turnout, the, the turnout rate for actual ballots being sent in will be about the same this year as it always is. But how far on page front page are people going to get? You know, judge of the circuit court, 4th district, position 11. Now that person's running unopposed. Uh, <clears throat> judge of the circuit court, 4th district, position 12 has six people running for it. Um, are the, is this even going to get filled out? And then the back of it, right? And there are city races here, so mayor, probably people are going to fill out mayor. Maybe, maybe not, though, because that's a huge long list as well. I mean, that's, I don't know, I'm just eyeballing it. It's maybe a dozen or more names. Same thing for uh, city commissioner. It's just a lot. So are people, based on this kind of campaigning, going to actually then register in the back? That'll, that'll be an interesting uh, thing. And that's, that, that information will be available actually really quickly, so we'll know probably by the end of this term I'll have some turnout uh, rate details to be able to show how down-ballot races this year compare to other years. But clearly, a giant chunk of what we do to communicate in a campaign is done face-to-face. -face. And with that, without that available, there's a lot more leaning on the other methods, which, while they're awfully high profile, are not necessarily the most effective. Okay, so uh, that's all preface for the, talking about the communication. There, how do you reach voters and supporters? There are direct methods and indirect methods. Um, indirect methods, I'll just say, even though it's on the right, and I'll talk about it uh, a second, indirect methods are different from direct methods because what indirect methods are doing is they are reaching voters and supporters through second, or not second, but through third parties, through other people. Not through the candidate, or the campaign materials, or actual campaign workers, which is what canvassing is doing. The direct methods are all what the campaign does 
to directly talk to voters and supporters and connect with them, communicate with them. Um, and when I say talk to, uh, that's a generic term for communicating. I'll sometimes slip into that, even though that talking to might be a print ad uh, or that talking to might be a direct mail flyer that shows up in somebody's, uh, somebody's uh, mailbox. All that is talking to. That's my synonym for communication. Even though communication can be visual and it can be uh, verbal, it can, not, it can be print, whatever it happens to be. Um, <clears throat> the indirect methods are the campaign gets other people to talk to voters and supporters on its behalf. And those people are not under the control of the campaign. So there's a different messaging that goes out. If you're going to talk to people who are then going to talk to others on your behalf, or you hope that they will, but you don't have any kind of control over what they say, then the way you speak to them, communicate with them, is going to be different than when you are directly reaching voters and supporters. So um, let me just, I guess that I will actually go from indirect to direct because I wasn't planning on that and it's, it's, it's right to left instead of left to right, so that defies all my linear brain stuff, but why not? Um, endorsements, there are essentially three kinds of endorsements and uh, each of them involves a different kind of outreach to get that. An endorsement is really, I, I should put, I will, I'm going to get chalk. I can't do without chalk, apparently. I can't do without messing this. Endorsements of these three are probably the most important because what endorsements are is they are people or organizations that have some kind of reach. They have, uh, in the sort of social media terms of these days, platform. They have people that are following them and looking to them for Voting guidance, right? The voter pamphlet is a big one, but many voters, myself included, uh, look to endorsements. The voter pamphlet is actually a really great conduit of endorsements. Uh, I don't necessarily look up the endorsements of the groups that matter to me directly. I look in the voters pamphlet to see if important groups have endorsed, uh, who, who important groups to me have endorsed. Like I'll almost always vote with what the teachers unions uh, are recommending. Um, endorsements are other people who have platform, they have reach, they have members, they have readers, they have followers in some way or another. They're opinion leaders. And what endorsements are is, is these are opinion leaders that you are seeking to uh, ally with or to have them uh, uh, support you. Three main types of endorsements. There's media, newspapers, magazines, television stations, radio stations, news outlets of all kinds they typically all make endorsements. Um, now, they may not endorse in every race. They may choose to say, well, we're not going to endorse anybody for uh, city council position two because none of them seem better than the others, and we'll wait for the general election to see when it's down to two, or they might. Uh, but these groups, uh, media outlets, m routinely, as part of their process of you know, civic engagement, they make endorsements. And they make endorsements with a very standard process. And the standard process is that all of the candidates are invited to come speak to and meet with, interview with the editorial board. 
Now, different editorial boards do this differently. Some of them have group interviews where all of the candidates for a particular race are brought in uh, to uh, the room at once. Other ones do it more like job interviews where you, uh, you, know, you have it one at a time. Maybe you've actually been on group job interviews where there's 10 people brought in for one job and they all get to see each other and be in, in the room. So media endorsements are, uh, they're, they're, they're standardized in the sense that different media outlets will have their process, they'll have their calendar, they'll do it at a particular time. They, will, they have a release date for their endorsements that is either the same or very similar from year to year. This is a very predictable feature of the campaign landscape. So I'll put this up here, media. There are also <clears throat> important individuals. And then there are interest groups. And while the media has a kind of standardized, scheduled, routinized way of deciding on who it's, they're going to endorse, the various media outlets, um, individuals and interest groups don't necessarily have that same thing. Interest groups may, are more like, I probably should have put it in a different order, because interest groups are more like media in the sense that, that they're probably going to endorse a bunch of candidates. But interest groups don't necessarily have a habit of endorsing somebody for every race that's on the ballot. Uh, there might just be races that uh, a particular interest group has no interest in endorsing. You know, there could be, uh, you know, an, an environmental interest group is going to look at certain races and is going to say, oh, there's, an there's a pro-environmental candidate that we want to endorse and we want to support, or here's a race and I wonder if any of these candidates are actually pro-environment enough that we can lend our brand to their candidacy. And they might call in all three of the candidates for, say, Metro Council President, interview them all, uh, and discover that none of them is really a pro-environmental candidate, and so they're not going to lend their support to any of them. Or, or if there is one candidate who claims to be the environmental candidate, that the things they say to the leadership of that particular advocacy group aren't sufficiently impressed with that person's commitment to the environment, so they're not going to endorse them. Um, the media will almost always endorse, media outlets will almost always endorse in every particular race, and when they don't, it's kind of the exception where they're saying, well, yeah, we just, no one really stands out in this particular race, particularly when you have a ton of candidates uh, running. Um, but interest groups may or may not, and so what you're doing with trying to get interest group endorsements is you're tr really trying to target and uh, um, convince groups that would seem like a natural uh, adjunct to your coalition. And partly, interest group endorsements tie in with coalition partners, because what you might actually get out of getting an interest group to endorse you is you might actually get money from that group for your campaign, and you might get some of their energy and outreach more than just them saying, we're endorsing this candidate, and yes, you can put our name in your materials, you can put our organization in the voters pamphlet, and you can claim to be the candidate who represents the you know, League of Conservation Voters. This is a group I know about, so I, I use that as an example an awful lot. Um, the League of Conservation Voters might, their support for you might end there, and they can, you can put their name on your flyers, you can say, you know, I don't know, supported by the League of Conservation Voters, and um, maybe the picture of the leader of it, if you, if you want to mix your messages in, in a way. But, or what you can get as, a, as an additional step, this is like an endorsement plus, is somebody, a group, that's actually willing to lend their resources to backing your campaign, 
and they're going to send out their own flyers. And what their flyer might be is their flyer might be, their direct mailer might be a list of candidates that they recommend. And that's actually, compared to this, which comes from this one candidate, uh, that's harder to throw away in the sense that you get something and you're like, oh, League of Conservation Voters. Well, yeah, I remember the reason they have my name is because I donated money to them and I support their work. And, oh, this is their endorsement card. This is, th these are the people in all the races that they say that if I'm a concerned uh, pro-conservation environmental voter, that these are the people that I ought to consider. Um, <clears throat> and that is going to be a more effective type of direct mailer than this, which falls under the direct communication. So it's not always that communicating directly with voters and supporters is going to be the best thing for a campaign. In fact, all three of these, these indirect methods, are really far more efficacious. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't and can't and don't have to do any of these other things or you downplay them, right? You have less control over the message over here, but uh, because you have less control, because it's coming from, for a lot of voters, a trusted source, right? Like I look at the Willamette Week and I just I vote with who the Willamette Week recommends. Now, I, I don't do that, but that's something that a lot of voters will do or they'll, they'll look at the Willamette Week and they'll consider that very strongly. I don't have control in my campaign, let's say that I'm the campaign manager of a, of a, um, a, camp, of a candidate campaign, um, and I send them to the uh, Willamette Week uh, editorial board endorsement interview. And we prepare them for that, and our candidate gets that endorsement. I don't have control over what the Willamette Week says about my candidate. Uh, all I have control over is what my candidate says to the editorial board, and if they get it, and then what the, what the editorial board then writes about that candidate. But part of the reason why it's, it is more effective is because people are naturally sort of guarded against manipulation and propaganda and um, um, intentional messaging, advertising. When the messaging is coming from outside the campaign, that guardedness is not only goes down, but a lot of times that guardedness is flipped, where you're looking to an opinion leader. You've decided that, okay, I'm gonna, whoever the Willamette Week supports, or whoever the Oregonian supports, or whoever the Mercury supports, because I like their general sensibility or I trust them, um, or uh, you know, whoever is supported by the League of Conservation Voters, or whoever is supported by you know, the Latinx uh, uh, network, like whatever it might be that you see as a leader uh, for your opinion that you trust, most, and this is particularly true for down ballot races where voters are, you know, even, even concerned voters aren't going to spend a ton, a ton of time thinking about all of these particular races. I mean, this is a lot, it's a lot, this is a lot to ask of a citizen in, a, in, 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 a, uh, in the modern world is to actually think about all of these races. Um, the ideal of citizen engagement is that we re everybody researches everybody that's on the ballot and makes an informed opinion, but we take shortcuts. Um, I, am, I am what I would consider to be a medium information voter. A medium information voter is somebody that actually pays attention to all of the, I, I will fill out something in each of these uh, cases, in each, in each of these categories, I'll fill out my entire ballot, and I will do so by finding something out about it. But I don't research them all. I don't look at all their websites. I don't ponder it all. I don't deeply read the uh, voter pamphlet statement. I often just start with my endorsements. And if I see, I go to the voter's pamphlet and I find out, like, okay, this, this person, here's six candidates. This person is endorsed by more organizations that I think are the ones that I want to back. 
That's medium information, because I don't myself go out and seek why is it that those endorsers chose that candidate. That would be a high information voter, somebody who actually goes to the source, right? Um, the, the analogy is like, you know, if, you, if, you, if there's something you don't know about and you go to Wikipedia to learn it, you're actually a medium information learner because you're, instead of just like, well, I'll speculate or I'll ask somebody and they'll tell me or I'll just kind of not bother knowing, um, I'll at least go to Wikipedia. The high information seeker will go to Wikipedia and will then look at the sources and will follow up and check and make sure that those sources are reliable and see where the Wikipedia article got its information from. Uh, that is not necessary in voting and it's certainly not the way that most people go about their research either in the world, right? Most people stop at Wikipedia or stop at whatever spot uh, that, you know, is, is the quick shot for them to find something out. Campaigning is the same way. So the indirect methods are really good because people are not only not guarded, they are often, it's flipped where they're open. They're like, tell me what to think, tell me how to vote. Um, the downside is you don't have a direct ability to speak to voters and supporters with your own language, with your own visuals, with your own information, with, with the things that you're leading with. Um, and uh, what this means is to the extent that outside groups have a bigger voice and a bigger role in campaigning, campaigns themselves lose a certain amount of control. This is actually at the, at the sort of the national level. This is what the Citizens United uh, ruling did. It actually, while it opened up the floodgates to pour dark money into our electoral system, that's one of the impacts. The bigger impact was that it empowered outside groups who themselves are like, we want this guy to win Senate, we want this person to be president, we want this person to be governor, uh, to have to do their own messaging. And in fact, Citizens United prevents coordination between the campaign and those outside groups if you're going to use that kind of unregulated dark money. Um, so the campaigns have lost a lot of control, but even under the, even under traditional conditions, even where there's not a you know there's no super PAC money being spread around for the Portland mayor or Portland city council position number two race or district judge eleventh position, which is there are six people on the ballot. There's no there's no uh, super PAC money. There's no dark money there. What there are is there are these indirect methods. These, there are these traditional outside groups, um, and. Endorsements by the media are really good because they reach a big audience. They have a big audience and they have an automatic audience. One of the reasons why there's a standardized procedure for media outlets to produce endorsements is because they know that this is one of the ways in which people look to them for civic leadership um, or just information, right? Uh, interest groups themselves, again, like they want elect people get to get elected who are aligned with their values and their policies. And so they're gonna look around and while it's not as systematized as uh, media outlets' form of endorsements, they're available. And there are, in fact, uh, interest groups that can be courted, and there are interest groups that will come looking uh, for the candidates. But one thing to do when you communicate, uh, when you're developing your strategy, actually, and then when you do the communication is, who are the interest groups out there that could be aligned with and support your candidate, either with an endorsement or even better, by going and doing their own direct mailers? Right? Because this is expensive. Right? This candidate spent a lot of money to get this to my house. Probably um, to get this to all the places, somewhere between uh, $15,000 and $30,000 just to send this thing that I'm being totally dismissive about. And the only reason I'm even looking at it is because I had a lecture today in campaign communication. So there's, it takes a lot of money to do that. Uh, if you can save that money by having a coalition partner do the direct mailing, 
then you can get that sort of unguarded. Like, I'm like, oh, God, they just want me to vote for them. I, this stuff's garbage. I don't even, it's advertising. It's advertising. And most of us are guarded against advertising. Even though advertising also obviously has an effect. It, has, it, it works. There's a reason to do it. There's a reason why these things are being sent out, is they have some effect. But if I get something from an organization that I wrote a $25 check to, or more likely my wife wrote a $25 check, because usually when the people, back when people came to your front door, would ask for a donation or to read your pamphlet or whatever it was, I would just say, I'm making dinner, get out of here. My wife would be the one who actually treated them like human beings, <clears throat> and often then wrote them a $25 check, and then they had our address. They're like, ooh, we got a check from this place, we're gonna put them on our mailing list, and so we're gonna send out our flyers. We're gonna spend the money, that our limited resources, they're on the mailing list, and they're going to get our flyer that says, here's the people you should vote for, right? If, I, if you ever donate money to Greenpeace, you're going to get direct mail from Greenpeace. It's not always going to be about candidate endorsements. Uh, it could be about issues. It could be about ballot measures. But it's, you're going to get communicated with by these outside groups. Uh, you don't have control over the message. That's always a downside. It's always campaigns are kind of control freaks about communication. So when you're on this side of things, you're relying on others to communicate in a way that you would like. Now, what is networking? Networking is basically getting other people to, through word of mouth, and through word of mouth is kind of a generic term, like it could be through their email list, it could be through their social media platforms, to basically talk you up. Um, and networking happens by organizations, but it also mostly happens by individuals. And this brings me back to the individual endorsement uh, category. There are public figures who are serious opinion leaders to a lot of people, and if you can court and successfully court and win their endorsement, and individuals are definitely, unlike media outlets, um, and even less than, like interest groups, they not they're not gonna throw their endorsements out there, uh, you know, just scatter them around because, like, well, I'm a Democrat, and so you're Democrats, I'll endorse all of you Democrats. There's going to be a more selectiveness because an individual, a high-profile person, an opinion leader, whether it's because they were an elected official, an ex-governor, or they have a popular blog or podcast, uh, or um, they're uh, well-known in their community as like a community leader. Here's, here's an activist who people trust, right? You know, you're a Black Lives Matter activist, and uh, black voters are going to look to you. And part of your brand as a high-profile individual is going to be tied up with your endorsements. And so these are harder ones to court, but they're also often the most meaningful. Because essentially, let's say that Kate Brown re uh, endorses my candidate's uh, run for state legislature. Now, definitely that's not going to happen unless I have a Democrat, because she's certainly not going to endorse a Republican, but she may not actually endorse every Democratic candidate for state legislature, because some of them she might not want to have her name tied to. Now, in that case, probably, uh, let, let, let's just think about ex-governors, right? Because the, the incumbent governor certainly has an interest in making sure uh, that their party, uh, and then there are rules for public, who are public figures, what they can and can't do in terms of communicating, so that gets complicated. Ex-governor, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, ex-member of Congress, right? Earl Blumenauer will eventually retire. I think he's supposed to retire uh, after 2022. Uh, that's uh, at least I think that's what I've heard. That's the rumor. He'll eventually retire. He's been our member of Congress, at least mine here in this particular district, for a really long time. Once he's out of office, 
his name on your candidacy is going to be really big because people who all those years, one of the only names they knew in politics, in progressive politics, was Earl Blumenauer. And if you can put Earl Blumenauer on your literature, if you can put his endorsement in your, in your voter pamphlet, if you can actually put uh, his words or even his voice in your radio or television ads, um, then that's going to carry a lot of weight with people. Now, clearly, I've already pulled in endorsements as part of our direct, and that's one of the things that indirect methods also give you the ability to put stuff in your direct communications to voters and supporters. Right? If um, the League of Conservation Voters not only endorses me, but is a coalition partner and says, yeah, we're going we're gonna to put you on our mailers, and uh, when we can send people out to knock doors again, canvassing, we're going to have our people talk about your candidate as well, I can then use that in my direct mailer. I can say, endorsed by the League of Conservation Voters. That will also potentially help me get other endorsements and coalition partners. There are multiple environmental groups and so, uh, and they do probably communicate with each other uh, an awful lot, so you might not have to do a whole lot to get the word out, but uh, I, I'm gonna wanna actively, as soon as I get an endorsement from one environmental group, I have to be seeking the endorsement of all the rest of the environmental groups. Like, it's, it, it would be foolish. It would be leaving support uncultivated if I didn't follow up on that particular thing. Now, back to individuals and networking. You don't necessarily even have to get an official endorsement from a public figure who's an opinion leader to benefit from indirect communication. You meet people, and they like you, and they're excited by your candidacy, and maybe they don't want to endorse you because that's, a, that's kind of a, that's, that's, you know, that's more like saying, yes, I will get into a relationship with you, which is a bigger thing than saying, yeah, you're cool, I'll talk you up, right? Networking is about having people talk you up. Now, again, you cannot control how they talk you up, um, and in fact, one of the problems with talking you up is that maybe they're actually talking you up in a way that comes across as either disingenuous or as sarcastic or something. They think they're actually giving you a, a, a really good recommendation or giving a good recommendation of you and other people are just like, yeah, you seem a little bit snide. Um, this is actually a personal story uh, for me. The very first letter of recommendation I ever wrote, I was a graduate uh, instructor and one of my students wanted to go to graduate school and, oh no, he was, excuse me, he was transferring to another school from the University of Washington. He wanted a letter of recommendation for me. Um, and so I wrote one and before I sent it off, I showed it to him and it was really glad that I showed it to him because he came back with it and he said, are you really, you really hate me that much? I was like, what do you mean? It's a great letter of recommendation. He was like, it is so sarcastic. I can't use this. You can't, you can't send this. This is going to hurt me. And I was like, oh, whoops, that's not what I intended at all. And so I actually had him rewrite it, and then I rewrote his rewriting of it. And for those of you who have ever asked me for letters of recommendation, you'll know that my new practice, or not new, my, my current practice, uh, based on this bad experience, was that I have you write the first draft, and then I edit it. And, I, you, and I'll send it to you to make sure that, for the sarcasm check. Uh, you don't necessarily get the sarcasm check when, you're, when you have uh, networking in a campaign. So it's, uh, again, this is where it's indirect. You don't have control. But really, honestly, that's not a huge problem. I don't want to make it out to be a huge problem. It's probably a bigger problem for professors writing letters of recommendation than it is for candidates who are having others network on their behalf. Uh, cultivating important people in organizations with uh, reach and platform, media outlets that have a kind of routine uh, um, connection to voters and uh, the, the way that people make their decisions. All of these are extremely important methods. And they all come differently. 
right? Like the, one of the things about media endorsements is that there's a schedule for it. And if your candidate misses the, uh, the endorsement interview with the editorial board of the Willamette Week, you don't get the endorsement. Even if they would have endorsed your candidate, you can't go, go in later and say, oh, no, 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 but really, you would like our person better. Uh, it's too late. So you need to know what that schedule is. You need to know who those organizations are that you want to be getting on the calendar. And part of your strategy, but then also part of your communication is preparing your candidate for those meetings, right? So endorsements are partly about outreach and information. And also for individuals, who, who's in your contact list, right? Can your candidate call up Oral Blumenauer? Or can your candidate call up somebody who can call up Earl Blumenauer, which is a kind of a networking avenue towards uh, that endorsement, to probably get Earl Blumenauer to then communicate back with you to uh, have a conversation where your candidate can actually make his or her pitch to Earl to be not just a supporter, but an actual endorser, a name that we can put in the voters' pamphlet that we can put on our uh, all, of, all the rest of our direct communications. So there's a lot of communication preparation that goes into getting your candidate into these places. And actually, uh, except for networking, which can be done more diffusely, right? Like the, camp, the, the campaign manager, the, um, uh, the finance chair, anybody who's involved with the campaign can be doing networking. They talk to the people they know and talk up the candidate. And they talk them up in a particular way. It's, you know, there is, there is the elevator pitch aspect of, well, we all need to sit down and figure out what it is that when we go out and talk about our candidate, what are we saying? Or at least what are the options, right? Like, it, it depends on who you're in the elevator with. If you're in the elevator with a business leader, you're going to have give a different elevator pitch than, than if you're in the elevator with the union leader. And if you're in the elevator with the person who's an environmentalist. Or if you're in the elevator with the person who uh, is involved with reproductive rights. But you want to have the basic elevator pitch and then a, a tailored version. You want to be able to talk to people about your candidate and have your candidate talk to people about themselves in a way that you hope will translate along, that they will take your elevator pitch and use their own words, but pass it along uh, it really that way. Now, you don't have control over indirect forms of communication, but you have an influence. The things that you say. So when you go into, for example, the Willamette Week's editorial uh, board uh, endorsement interview, you want to win that interview. You want to win that endorsement over the other candidates. So you need to know who your opponents are and what they might be saying. But you also want to give the board what they're then going to say about you, right? Like, they're going to write up. Like, here's why we're endorsing this person. Because this person is passionate about community engagement in uh, public policy problems, right? If that's something your campaign thinks that is really good for, for uh, uh, the public to know, for voters and supporters to know about you, that what you're all about is dialogue and community engagement, listening, uh, and in, enrolling as many people as possible. You're basically, this is a part of the voice of the campaign is that you're, you're pitching yourself as a person with a set of skills, right? Not with a set of issues or policies, not necessarily even with a set of experience or uh, um, any kind of particular character, with a set of skills that you think will speak to voters. Like, this is a person who knows how to listen, who knows how to bring in people with diverse ideas, who knows how to bring people together and unify and develop consensus around the policies that matter to us, around homelessness, around parking, around traffic, around taxation, uh, around, uh, around uh, um, gentrification. You're going to go into the endorsement meeting 
with the Willamette Week, wanting the Willamette Week editors to be excited about your candidate the right way. You know, not, oh, here's a guy who, I don't know, is passionate about solving the homeless problem. When you're like, ooh, no, that's not exactly, that's not what we want. That's, that, that's kind of not what our strategy tells us we want. We want the Willamette Week to say, here's a person who's passionate about community engagement and active listening and developing uh, coalitions and consensus. So we can't control what the Willamette Week is going to write, but what we can do is we can send our candidate in there with a pitch that is going to influence what the Willamette Week ends up writing. Now they'll, and they'll do their own research too, so there's part that you can't necessarily control all of it by having a well-prepared interview. But endorsement interviews, and this is, this is candidate time, and I've talked about this in the past where there's only that, that time is a resource, and it's a scarce resource. You can increase the labor hours available to your campaign by getting more activists, by getting more money that you can pay uh, people who actually work on your campaign. You cannot increase the length of the day for your candidate. And knowing where to distribute that completely scarce resource is very important. This is one of the places that you want to put the most precious of your candidate's time. And then also, the preparation for that. Like you want to make sure that you set aside staff resources to put together the preparation so that when the staff is preparing the candidate, which is lost time for the candidate, you spend two hours with a candidate preparing them for a 45 minute endorsement interview, that's two hours and 45 minutes taken, not 45 minutes for the endorsement interview. So you want to spend the staff resources to see if you can't get that endorsement preparation session down to one hour. Or half an hour and the more you do it right and the more of these things you do it's not going to be that you it, it's you're going to spend less and less time on each preparation session as your candidate is just like okay I know I don't can then you say okay you're talking to the conservation voters and now you're talking to the to uh, the development league and now you're talking to uh, the Black Lives Matter people um, and now you're talking to the um, the uh, parks record parks and recreation activist people so here's here's what you need to know about all those things but notice how diverse it is uh, of groups that you may be talking to and how targeted your messages are going to want to be. When you do other forms, when you do your direct communication, there's going to be some targeting and some, some fragmentation of your message or some, some, some uh, um, not fragmentation because that's, that's actually a bad thing. Uh, there's going to be some targeting of your message and some tailoring of it to different groups. But mostly when you directly communicate, you're going to be directly communicating in pretty much the same way. You've developed a message that is cohesive and coherent and you have your uh, essentially same things you're saying depending on what the medium is, you're going to say it in a different way, but you're saying the same things. Here, it's going to be, particularly for endorsements, it's going to be much more targeted. Um, I think I've said enough about indirect methods. There's, there's always way more to elaborate on, but uh, I think I'm going to move over to the direct methods. Um, now. Here's the full list, and you can see it in the notes. Uh, ads, mail and email, social media speeches, debates and forums, voters pamphlet canvassing, and fundraisers. These are all the ways that candidates and campaigns reach voters and supporters. And it's quite a diverse list. And notice that the difference between writing a good ad and writing a good speech um, and writing a good voters pamphlet statement and uh, writing a, uh, um, a, or preparing what canvassers are going to say and what they're going to hand out. These are all different uh, forms of communication. And uh, all of them have to be done at the highest level possible. You write your stump speech and 
that doesn't then just give you the script for your radio ad. Uh, it, it's, it should be that your radio ad and your stump speech have the same message and the same theme, but you're, uh, you're not doing the same thing. And when you're, when you're creating a radio ad, you are creating a static thing that is going to be repeated over and over again uh, in a 30 second time. With a speech, you're speaking directly to real people and that's a, people's ears are different when they're sitting in a room listening to a potential candidate uh, or listening to a candidate than when they're driving in their car listening to the radio and they hear things. So the way the ears or the eyes or whatever it is that's receiving the information, that context is gonna change. And so all of these different forms of communication involve related but different forms of art. It's a different art to write a good radio ad than it is to write a good stump speech. It's a different art to create a piece of direct mail, one of these guys, than it is to write an email that goes out to the people who are on your email list. I've, I've, I've bulked these together because, I, I mean, I probably should have made a separate list of them, but mail and email, things that go to people's uh, mailboxes and things that go to people's uh, inboxes. Different thing to cut through, right? Even just for, you know, for an email, you need a subject line. You don't need a subject line for a piece of direct mail. Writing a compelling subject line so that people won't just immediately delete your mail, writing, creating a good piece of direct mail, which is way more visual, not that email can't have visuals in it, but it tends to be more text uh, heavy, are different art forms. Uh, a campaign has to be adept in communicating in all of these different forms of art, essentially. Um, <clears throat> now, notice how many of these are face-to-face, -face, right? Speeches, debates and forums, canvassing, and fundraisers. Half of this list is face-to-face. -face. Not all with the candidate, though, uh, you know, two plus R, right? Speeches and debates and forums, that's your candidate. It has to be there. They're the one communicating. So a big part of what you have to do as uh, when you form the communication for a campaign is work with your candidate and uh, what the candidate's givens are, right? Like, if you have a candidate that is really charismatic and can deliver the shit out of a speech, right, you're going to write a speech for a charismatic speech giver. If you have a sort of wooden, uncomfortable, uh, stage-frightened or partly stage-frightened candidate, then you're going to write a different kind of speech. You're not going to try to write a charismatic speech for somebody who is stiff. It's only going to come across as terrible. Right? Um, now, th there are exceptions to this, and uh, usually they're, they're high visibility exceptions. Like, I think about George Bush and his speechwriters. George Bush was not a good speech giver. Um, he couldn't really just flatten out anything. But when you read his speeches on paper, they're insanely good. He had, of course, he was the President of the United States. He had the best speechwriters possible. They wrote, I actually think, they did him a disservice because they wrote speeches for him that he couldn't deliver. Um, but they, they did it anyway. And I think it was probably the right choice because instead of giving him speeches that were less inspiring that he could kind of de deliver more in his voice, which would have really downplayed, they were, they were essentially writing for history in a way. Um, but the fact is, is that George Bush couldn't deliver the speeches that were given to him. And when you have a candidate and you, you want to be able to maximize their impact on voters, you need to make sure that the speech is a speech for that person. When you have canvassing, when you have uh, volunteers going door to door with two things, right? Usually a piece of direct mail, not mail, but a piece, uh, a piece of literature, campaign literature, 
Uh, it can be bigger because um, it, you, you don't have to spend more money to uh, mail out a pamphlet than you do a direct mail, a, a, a single piece of paper. Uh, it, can be, it can be bigger, but you send them out there with a piece of campaign literature and then their elevator pitch. And then the third piece is their preparation for the question and answer. So canvassing has, there are three aspects to what goes into preparing canvassing. One is the literature that they're going to hand to the person. Hopefully the person's going to take it, right? And uh, canvassing is way more effective than direct mail, even if it's the same thing, right? If, if a volunteer for uh, Jazz Davis or Jazz Davis or whatever this guy's name, first of all, I would know how to pronounce it if somebody came to my door and told me the name of the candidate. Um, but even if somebody came to my door and handed this to me personally, the same exact piece of mail, uh, or campaign literature, instead of me getting it out of my mailbox, it's going to be a different thing because as I walk to the recycle bin with it, the 30 feet between my front door and my recycling bin, uh, which actually does go through this room, it's, the, it's off camera to that side is, is the door to my kitchen where my recycling bin is, off camera that way is my front door. Um, that's my pathway. I've got about 30 feet between when I receive something from the mailbox or when I receive something from somebody's hand before I recycle it. My canvasser, first of all, they need a piece of literature. Second of all, they need to have their elevator pitch so that, that my 30-foot trip, actually their voice is in my head. And maybe instead of, instead of recycling it unread, I might actually be like, I might stop halfway and be like, oh, that young person did seem pretty passionate about this. And so what is progressive James Jazz Davis is running for city council to shake up city hall? Okay, like, what does that mean to me reading it? But if here's somebody who, who in their elevator pitch to me was like, you know, we need somebody who's going to get into City Hall and really shake it up. That's going to then in, uh, uh, reinforce the message that's in the printed literature that gets left behind. And then there's the Q&A. Like your, your canvassers need to be, and they're not always, but they need to be prepared to answer the questions or engage in a dialogue. Like One of the great things about canvassing and one of the horrible things about right now for many candidates that can't use it because of uh, the social distancing requirements is that... Um, this is where there's an opportunity to actually engage a voter in a dialogue. And if you, if, if you get somebody at the door and you get them excited enough to spend three minutes even talking to you about your candidate, they're, when, when they pick up this big long ballot and they're scanning through and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I talked to somebody from the Tara Hurst campaign and they, she seemed really amazing. I don't even know if Tara is a she or not. It seems like a female name, but maybe that's just sexism. Be like, oh yeah, you know, like, okay. Oh, and here's James Jazz Davis, right? It's in, it's in parentheses, actually, on the, on the ballot. Like, oh yeah, I talked to somebody, and I remember I had a conversation about this person, and this young person was super excited and was able to engage me. Like, I had questions. Well, what does it mean to shake up City Hall? Like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, in theory, I would like a shaken up City Hall because I think that our city government's not doing necessarily such a great job. I'm definitely not going to vote for Ted Wheeler again. Uh, all this is just me pretending to be a voter. I, none of these are my real views, um, though maybe they are. You never know. But... And the person's like, no, what, what shakeup is this? Here's, here's what we have to say. They're prepared for the Q&A. And that shouldn't be spontaneous. And it shouldn't just be that one young person's uh, opinion. That is a form of campaign communication. And it's a very powerful one. Um, much like uh, an endorsement that comes from a trusted media source or a trusted individual or a, a, an interest group that you support and therefore that you trust what they want, uh, who they want to get elected. A person at your front door an energetic, excited, passionate young person at your front door is going to translate some of that passion uh, to the voter, and, but you want to make sure it's translated in the right way. Okay? You want to make sure that that excitement turns into 
the right kind of excitement, the, the kind of excitement that's going to get them to fill out the ballot, not the kind of excitement that's like, wow, these people are really for this person who seems like a total wacko. Uh, and I, there's no way I'm voting for Jas Davis because he's going to shake up City Hall in, a, in, a, in, the, in the wrong way. So clearly you can't just send uh, excited young people to people's doors with a piece of campaign literature and no training. Uh, and no cohesive message. And, and then, no, you know, uh, they need message discipline, too. They can't, they need to get in and out of this three-minute conversation uh, effectively. So, canvassing is where you're actually preparing not your candidate, but a bunch of other people to go talk about your candidate. Um, fundraisers are kind of a combination, because what you're doing is you're usually sending your candidate to a fundraiser, and they're going to be talking to people uh, directly, and they may even hopefully have a chance to give a speech, but then they're going to be doing some networking, so fundraising and networking are connected to each other. Um, but uh, you're also presumably going to have campaign workers, uh, especially if you've set up this fundraiser yourself. If, you, if, if, if you're going to a fundraiser that's being given on your behalf, or you're going to, to a collective fundraiser, like one for the Democratic Party, where a bunch of Democratic candidates are getting together, um, you don't have control over that, but you're still going to bring campaign workers. You, everybody needs to be prepared to talk to potential donors and potential endorsers, right? This is thing is, fundraisers, actually, I will put that fundraisers do lead to indirect communication. You get money from people, hopefully, but a lot of what you do kind of get is networking and potentially you get an endorsement. It's, a, it's an opportunity. If you can get somebody who can write your campaign a $1,000 check to come to your fundraiser, uh, and, and also you can get that person who is a public figure to not just give you money, which is of course useful, but to give you their name to put on your literature and to put in your voters pamphlet, that's a real win. Um, speeches, debates, and forums, canvassing, and fundraisers are off the table right now, and it will be interesting to see. I, I can't wait to teach this class again in the spring of 2021 to see what it is that I'm saying about these forms of face-to-face -face politicking. Either, well, this is what it used to be like in the pre-COVID days, and now in the post-COVID days, campaigning has, has fundamentally changed. I definitely have a we'll-see kind of attitude. I have, really have no idea. Uh, whether it's going to return to the level that it was. Um, at this moment in history, in political history, the other four methods have taken an outsized importance, and the, the interesting thing about that is that of all of these methods of communicating, they are the least effective at generating support uh, at persuading people who are undecided, at persuading people who might have been leaning in one direction but are persuadable to come in the other direction, um, at getting people to go all the way to the bottom of the ballot, right? Ads, television, radio, print ads, and then, you know, internet ads, which I would consider to be similar to print ads. Those forms of communication, they have kind of, that's the high, uh, like high concept stuff. And when we think about elections, we tend to think about presidential elections and, and elections for Senate and governor. And th this is, you know, when you, where you make a movie out of uh, a, a campaign, tons and tons of uh, effort and time and money and messaging and strategies can be put into those television ads and radio ads and, and, and big print ads. Uh, those campaigns, one, they have to do that because they're trying to reach so many people that you can't do a lot of the other face-to-face -face stuff at a scale that's going to get you across the finish line with more votes. But um, what also uh, is uh, the case is that that's the only opportunity that they have, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's effective, right? Presidential candidates have to put television ads, but they are less effective at getting people to support than canvassing is. And so the, the ground game 
is part of communication. Like, and a big part of part of the ground game is getting people to voters, getting people from your campaign to voters and supporters in a way that's actually going to get through to them. Ads, as I already indicated, people are armored up against ads. We know that when we're watching a television show and there's an ad for jeans, they're trying to sell us jeans or an ad for beer or cars or whatever it happens to be. We know they're trying to sell us, and so we, we understand that there's a kind of like, well, you want my money, so you're telling me something, you're telling me a story that is intended to get me to go there. People are similarly armored up against political ads. I think a little less so, but still, at a very high level, people see political ads, and while they have an influence over you, just like ads for jeans and for, for beer and for cars, even though we're armored up against them, doesn't mean that they don't have an impact on us. Um, what you're trying to do with ads is you're really trying to essentially get people to think about you in a positive feeling way, um, which is the same thing you're trying to do when you send out your canvassers, but it's a different medium and a different art form. How do you get people to feel positive about you when a young person is at your door? Well, translate their excitement and energy and passion into that other person. That's, a, that's an interpersonal skill, and the messaging is uh, different than you have a television ad or you have a radio ad, how do you get that to translate directly from essentially a sterile medium? It's a, it's, a, it's a speaker in your car probably, driving around listening to commercial radio, and this voice comes on and it's an ad. What you're doing there is far more emotional and far less argumentative, rational, informational. Right? When you send people out to Canvas, you have literature and uh, you have a person who can adapt their message to their audience, and that gives you the ability to essentially have a rational discourse. Not to say that you don't want to use emotion in your appeal, that you don't want to have their, like, the passion and the energy have to get translated across, of course, but um, you also have the opportunity to provide information, to answer questions, to provide literature that has more you know, bullet points, and maybe even uh, you know, your healthcare plan or your plan to save the environment, whatever it happens to be. Television, radio, and Print ads a little bit more, a little bit more like canvassing, but television and radio ads particularly, your intention is to create a feeling without a ton of information. And you have to be getting essentially around people's uh, people's guardedness to do so. Now, it's expensive to air this stuff, it's expensive to produce effective ones, it's expensive to buy the talent that knows how to actually construct a really good uh, television or radio ad. Uh, and it is also, of these methods, it is the, one of the least effective at getting across to people. Mail and email, same thing. Social media, more so. Social media belongs higher on this list. And to, you know, I didn't prioritize this or put this in any sort of order of, of effectiveness. But social media is way more targetable than other forms of uh, uh, direct communication. And when people are on social media, they're actually looking for something. Right? Uh, as opposed to when I go to my mailbox, really mostly I'm just getting my mail. Uh, and when I go to open my inbox, I'm really I'm just looking to clear out my inbox. And I think that, that I'm a pretty common person in that way. Um, when uh, I'm on social media, I'm actually maybe just killing time and wasting time or whatever. But, but people go onto social media because they're looking for something. Um, and so there, there's an, the audience is more open. And so social media has become a way more important piece of campaigning. Um, it's tricky because a lot of times finding how to get to the people who would be your supporters or finding how to get to the people who are persuadable, undecided voters, that's sort of challenging. One of the things about traditional media 
If you're going to do a radio ad, radio stations, they have a report. They have a demographic breakdown. They, they can tell you because you're like any other advertiser. You want to know whether you're going to be reaching the right people. Uh, traditional forms of mass media, they come and tell you who your audience uh, is going to be if you use if you go at 9 o'clock on this particular radio station, 9 a.m. on this particular radio station, they can tell you in, in a very detailed way. And then you can know, like, oh, yeah, these are the people I'm trying to reach. Social media is a little bit, while there's tons of information about all these people, it's kind of harder to get to the, exactly the people that you want to be reaching. Uh, the voter's pamphlet, and I should just put a huge star on this one. The voter's pamphlet is extremely important. Now, if you're campaigning outside of Oregon, this, the voters' pamphlet doesn't exist everywhere, believe it or not. Um, so this is a primary tool for anybody who's working on elections in the state of Oregon. This thing really is, for many, many voters, particularly when we're talking down ballot, second side of the uh, ballot, this is the beginning and the end of their engagement with the election. And so writing it is extremely important. There's a picture, there are the required sections, and then there's all the other other stuff to add. Choosing the right picture. I, I'm, not, I'm not voting for Blair G. Reynolds. I promise you I'm not voting for him. I don't even know what he's running for because that picture, I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Now, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty bad thing for me to admit. And actually, I'm not in the 5th District, so I won't even get to vote because I know that Kurt Schrader is, is the incumbent and I, he's not my incumbent. But I'm just looking at this. I mean, he, first of all, here's just, you know, three white guys. But I look at these three white guys, I'm like, that guy, I don't want him in Congress representing me. Uh, now, that may not be a mistake on the part of the Blair G. Reynolds campaign that this is the picture that was chosen. They may be like, well, this is, we want people who aren't going to vote for the incumbent, Kurt Schrader, who's just like the most dry, generic-looking white guy possible. Um, but, uh, so they're trying to probably differentiate themselves from him. But if I'm a potential voter, that picture is going to just, it's going to turn me off. Um, and not in a like, oh God, oh, look at that beard, in a comb it kind of way, but just like, that guy doesn't, I don't see him in Congress for me. Uh, picture, the required uh, sections, which, you know, uh, I know that in at least one of the guest lecture interviews, this was talked about how important it is to be able to have, like, prior government experience. Well, what has Blair G. Reynolds got? Military. That's it. So, what I know about him, and this is a required section, you can't, if, if you don't fill anything out of this, it just says none. So, that was the most he could come up with, and I'm like, Okay, that's, to me, for somebody who's going to go to the United States Congress, that's not enough. Uh, but let's say that, you know, all, all this stuff is good, then, then all the rest of this. And I don't see any endorsements uh, here, so I know that people that I would normally follow their opinion lead are not supporting this particular guy. Now, I just opened to a random page, and I'm really sorry if any of you out there are Blair G. Reynolds supporters, uh, or if Blair G. Reynolds is actually ever going to watch this, but... Um, I, would, I could similarly analyze and tear apart anybody's in here, so this was just a random example. But it is really important that the picture, we are visual creatures, and uh, politics is about, in a lot of ways, it's about emotional responses to candidates, and a photograph is an automatic emotional response. You have a square, black and white photograph, it is really important to pay attention to what that candidate looks like. And that's where you need your strategy. Like, what is, maybe uh, Blair G. Reynolds photo is actually a representative of his voice, because I know that he's running against an incumbent. So he's, auto he's, he's running a challenger message, for sure. 
Um, so that's probably the right photograph, since the challenger photograph needs to distinguish and differentiate you from the incumbent. And the Kurt Schrader, he's the incumbent. He has a brand. He is the gray-haired, sort of statuesque white guy who has been in this position for a while, so he's actually playing to brand. Both of those pictures really fit probably the voice that each of these campaigns has developed. Um, but the voter pamphlet is stupendously important in Oregon because it is the only piece of campaign communication that many, many voters will get. And um, for low and medium information voters, uh, the, the, the fact that they're even going to fill out one of the bubbles on the back of that way down ballot may be that they look at the voter pamphlet and they're like, yeah, I, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know anything about these three people on these three pages, but that person speaks to me. I guess I'll actually fill out a bubble instead of leaving it blank because I don't really know who, the, who these people are or what this race happens to be. Um, <clears throat> so the voters pamphlet is obviously very important and a lot of time gets put in. There's deadlines, uh, much like uh, media outlet endorsement interviews, there's a timeline and there's a format. And uh, this is where actually just having a high quality campaign manager uh, even a, a medium quality campaign manager, but somebody who knows the ropes, somebody who knows the deadlines, who knows the structure, who knows uh, the ropes, somebody who's written multiple voters pamphlet uh, statements, or who's at least been part of the team that's written multiple voter pamphlet statements. Uh, an email and the voter pamphlet statement are very different. You don't just want to cut and paste your voter pamphlet statement and put it into an email that goes out to the people who've signed up for your email list or who you've bought an email list of potential voters in your district. You want to be able to get across in an email that people are probably going to delete before they even start reading it, but if you catch their attention with a good reline and then you actually grab their attention and keep it long enough, a good email is going to, to work, but it is a different type of art form. So I guess that probably the last thing I ought to say uh, in this particular lecture is that communication, a campaign is communication, that's what you're doing. You're reaching voters and supporters, that's what a campaign is. All the other work, fundraising, uh, act, getting activist energy, coalition building, all of that other stuff is so that you can do the communication. It is the thing. It is the campaign. Uh, but a campaign is a diverse set of communication. And it's a lot of work to put together all of the different pieces of communication with a different style. A speech is definitely different than a candidate forum. If I'm sending my candidate to speak to an Elks Club, um, or a Chamber of Commerce and give a speech to a Chamber of Commerce luncheon, that's going to be a different form of communication than if I am sending my candidate to a Chamber of Commerce candidate forum, where all of the different candidates for an office are going to be there at the lunch and each of them is going to get a chance to speak. It looks very similar because your candidate is getting up in front of this group of people and speaking to them, but when you're speaking by yourself to an audience and when you're speaking with other people that you're running against, uh, that's a very different style of communication and you want to be prepared for both. You don't just want to send your candidate with their stump speech into a candidate forum. And certainly a debate, debate preparation is, is, is definitely really important. Same thing with endorsements. You don't want to send your candidate into an endorsement interview with just the same stump speech. Um, there's, there's really a lot of different types of communication that go on. Speeches also, just to, to, to differentiate between different kinds of environments. Your campaign creates campaign events, at least back when you could create campaign events and people would get together. There are also events that are available to you, and so two different environments, at least, for uh, speeches. One, you set up an event. Uh, 
Two, you were invited to speak at an event or you found out about an organization that is open to you coming and speaking to the group. You reached out to the, vet, to the, to the VFW uh, um, uh, post that is in your district and you said, hey, can I come speak to your, the next time you have a group? And they say, sure, right? Like, again, a good campaign manager will know how to get out there and get those opportunities. They don't just come to you. You're not going to get an email from the VFW saying, hey, we hear you're running for state senate in the district that our post is in. Do you want to come speak to our uh, members when they have their Friday lunch? You might get that email, but you're probably not going to. You have to go seek that kind of opportunity. That speech is going to be and should be different than the speech that you give at a campaign rally that you hold in uh, you know, Alberta Park uh, for, you know, three weeks before the election, and you have a picnic and, and, you have, and, you, and, and your candidate gives a speech. So each of these uh, has some different environments. The same thing for fundraisers, right? If you're, if, you're do, if you're doing a fundraiser that's a banquet, that's a different type of event than a fundraiser that's a house party that's essentially been one of your supporters is opening their house and having cocktails and food uh, to bring people together to support you. You're going to go to each of those fundraisers. Your candidate should be going to each of those fundraisers with a different version of what the campaign message is. Now, just because we have a huge diversity of art forms through which a campaign has to communicate, some of them visual, some of them verbal, some of them printed, some of them, uh, some of them word of mouth, doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a voice and a strategy behind all of that stuff. And in fact, writing the voters' pamphlet statement and writing an email or creating a piece of direct mail, they are different forms, but you should be doing, with all three of those things, you should be doing the same thing just through a different form. And that same thing is what your candidate, or I have I've spoken mostly about candidates today, but most of this stuff applies to ballot measures, or what your ballot measure, why the people should vote yes on your ballot measure, or no if you're on the no side, why people should vote for your candidate. It's all the same message. It's all the same story. It's just told in a different format, right? Think of the difference. Think of, you know, you want to tell a story. Imagine that you're going to tell a story about a, a transformative event in your life, right? Like you got into a car wreck that almost killed you and you recovered. And what it did was it opened your eyes because it was your first major uh, encounter with the, uh, the world of healthcare provision. It opened your eyes to like, wow, it's really important that we have a good system of insurance. Like you, you're, you're like, oh God, I had, I, I, I could have easily gone fifty thousand dollars into debt if I didn't have good insurance through my uh, my employer, and I didn't even really know that. I just knew I had benefits, and also like the the your experience, like good doctors, good nurses, all the stuff was available to you. It opened your eyes as a person to just how important healthcare is, and that's your passion. It's what and it's and to to. Make sure that everybody has access to high quality health care, to make sure that everybody has access to, to, to good insurance that will keep them from having a medical bankruptcy. This is your candidate's passion. This is your story. This is what you want to get across. If you're going to do, uh, if you're going to write, like let's just say, it's not even Canada, like I started this by talking about you. Like if this, is, if this was a transformative thing and, you, and this is part of what you want the world to know about you, um, you could write a short story you could write an essay, a memoir-ish essay. You could make a short film uh, for YouTube. You could do a series of Instagram posts. You could do a Facebook post. Um, you could have a written version of the story, and then there's a story that you tell around campfires when you're talking to people who are like, you know, hey, tell us what's up with you. Each of us has these the same diversity of 
communication opportunities available to us. And we don't need, as people, we don't need to have a kind of cohesiveness to all of this. Like if, if I had the car wreck, I could tell that story very differently around a campfire than I could tell it in some kind of YouTube video that I want to make of it. And I could tell it very differently when uh, you know, I'm writing, a, a, say, a, you know, a piece for the school newspaper. I don't, I as a person try to tell my story, but if you actually do want to, that story to get out there in, in the power that you feel it, you are going to want to have a cohesiveness to that message. So a big part of communication for a campaign is diversity of form, but cohesiveness of voice and message. Uh, and it's particularly true when you actually have direct control uh, over what's reaching the eyes and ears uh, and emotions of uh, voters and supporters. It's also true when you only have an indirect influence, where you can influence what people say about you. You still want to have that. Like, you know, if you're going to talk about networking, if you meet somebody, if your candidate meets somebody, you want them to be able to, in one minute, get across the heart of why they're running for office. I'm running for state senate, I'm taking on a longtime incumbent, and why? Like, what's going what's gonna to translate over that's going to get that person that, that your candidate runs into at a fundraiser or runs into at an elevator going up to uh, an endorsement interview and this person just happens to work on the same floor and they say, oh, hey, you know, they see your, they see your candidate's button, you know, you're running for state senate. Like, wow, why? And then you, you want, who knows who that person in the elevator is? Your candidate needs to be ready to give them the one-minute version that fits in and that when that person then goes off and talks to other people and maybe even says, hey, I'm going to tell my friends, I'm going to tell people about you because you seem like you ought to be in the state senate. Uh, you want what that person says to fit the overall voice and strategy of your campaign as well. So now, I will, I will note, I've been kind of giving most of this lecture as a, uh, you know, from the point of view of the vocational side of being able to be a campaign manager or, or a communications director or a strategist for a campaign, like what your task is uh, and how diverse and what the, what's the specifics of each of those diverse uh, forms of communication are. Like, you can't just send canvassers out there without the ability to give an elevator pitch and to do a Q&A. You can't just say, here's the, here's the pamphlet, pass it out, and come back and tell us how many people yeah, you gave your pamphlet to. Uh, but from the sort of political analysis point of view, I will say that this stuff is done well and done poorly depending on the campaign. Not all campaigns do this. Not all campaigns actually uh, do know what their voice is or have a cohesive message. And they send out an email that tells a totally different story than the voter pamphlet story. And that's not devastating. It's just not as effective. And if there's a candidate who is doing, if they're running against a candidate who's doing a more cohesive, planned, strategic version of their communication, maybe that candidate won't win, but they're going to have, have a higher likelihood of winning. Maybe you'll win anyway just because of the nature of the election and the times, and, and it's, it's, it's a character uh, election, and the other person has issues on their side, and your guy has character, and so you win on the character. You could still, you could win a campaign by not having the best, most effective campaign uh, organization possible, but one of the things that does decide between winning and losing in a lot of races, particularly way down ballot, where a lot of it is just getting people to be aware of who your candidate is, is having an effective, cohesive strategy that is deployed through all of the different means, and that you don't ignore any of these things. That's the other thing. You don't not canvas, or you don't not seek coalition partners. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I got an endorsement for the League of Conservation Voters. Well, great. What did you do with that endorsement? Well, yeah, I just they just endorsed me. Like, no, that's a that's a failure to take that in relationship to the next step, which is, well, 
maybe they could like are will they send out our name on some of their flyers like i don't know like, they just they said they would endorse me and i could put their name over the organization in the voter pamphlet and so i did that right but then you didn't put that in your email and it, you didn't make it part of uh you know when you are going to a for a candidate forum say hey i'm the, i'm the environmental candidate and, and here's why making those connections but distributing your campaign voice across the different forms is all a really important part of the art of communication in a campaign. All right, well, that's it. Uh, this week, there's another guest lecture. I forget who the guest lecturer is this particular week, but it's on the DQL site, and you can listen to it. Maybe you've even already listened to it. But this is the lecture for week six. We're now on the downhill side of the spring term. It's going to go really fast from here on. And this is, I promise you, it's the last time you're going to see me in a tie for this term. Uh, and for many of you, you've never seen me in a tie before, and you'll never see me in a tie again. All right, not that I won't wear ties, but now I'm just rambling. I should just end this and get on with the rest of my day. All right, bye.